Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Worldwide Tax Daily. This week, unfinished business. We've previously talked about the Section 199A deduction for qualified business income. But since it's such a large issue, uh, we're still learning about how it works. So we're bringing back Tax Notes Today legal reporter Eric Yauk to talk about some of the issues we haven't covered yet. Eric, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Dave. Thanks for having me back. Eric, why don't you start by giving listeners just an overview of Section 199A and what we know so far. Sure, Dave. 199 cap A was added to the code to provide some parity for the corporate rate cut from 35% to 21%. And what 199 cap A does is it provides pass-through business owners a 20% write-off for certain qualified business income. It's important to keep in mind that this write-off applies to all business owners up to certain income thresholds. As soon as you get above these thresholds, then the income from some services doesn't qualify, like law, health, accounting, and the income from services that do qualify are limited by wages paid to employees and unadjusted basis and property. And so this is very complex. It's very granular. And we got the first round of proposed rules on the broader aspects of how this is going to work in August. And the IRS received over 300 comments. They had a hearing. It was packed. And they got a lot of feedback from the tax community. And they put out final rules in January, I think January 18th. And this is on just like the broader aspects of the regime. One of the big changes in the final rules is that they allow aggregation. So you can combine wages and basis of property from other businesses into one to maximize your 199 cap a write-off. So they allowed that at the entity level in the final rules, not just at the individual level, which was welcome. It's also important to note that for the 2018 filing season, taxpayers can rely on either the proposed or final regulations when filing their tax returns. All right, so let's get into some of the issues we haven't discussed yet. Did the IRS address how rental real estate would be treated in the final rules? So I think it's important to back up and focus on the fact that in the proposed regulations, the IRS relied on the Section 162 definition of what's a trader business. Now, for most businesses, that made sense. But for rental real estate, that's been complex and pretty confusing for the past, you know, 40, 50 years. And so in a lot of comments on the proposed regulations, the main issue, even at the IRS hearing on 199 Cap A, focused on the fact that passive rental real estate needed some more meat on the bones as to whether they could use the 199 Cap A write-off. So on the same day, that the final regulations came out on 199 Cap A, the IRS issued a notice with a proposed revenue procedure. And what that did was it created a safe harbor for rental real estate. It has a three-pronged test, a 250-hour active conduct test, and it was meant to give taxpayers guidance on whether the real estate rental income qualified for 199 Cap A. But there were some quirks in it, though. Services provided by agents, such as like mowing grass or performing maintenance, they count toward the 250-hour requirement, but driving to the properties does not count towards that 250-hour requirement. I think taxpayers were a little bit surprised by kind of like the one-off items like that. But the biggest issue with rental real estate is whether a triple net lease qualifies. A safe harbor says that a triple net lease doesn't qualify under the safe harbor, but that doesn't mean it can't qualify as a trader business under 162. Now, it defines a triple net lease as one where the lessee pays taxes, insurance, and is responsible for maintenance in addition to rent. Now, one question is, what if there's a maintenance fee in the lease, but the lessee then fixes their own toilet? Does that now mean that it's a triple net lease? And so I think people are a little bit frustrated with that. And frankly, a lot of people said that there is actually no scenario where the safe harbor would actually apply. The proposed regulations also said that one trader business could be conducted across multiple entities, but the safe harbor is entity specific. So taxpayers have wondered what the outcome would be if there are like 10 regarded partnerships across the same tier with common management on their own 
own. It may not be a trader business, but across all the entities on that tier, it may be. So finding out when a triple net lease would rise to the level of a trader business would be helpful. Now, what more do we know about the limitations on what business owners can use Section 199A? Well, Dave, I think that that's a good question. And it's important to keep in mind that above certain income thresholds, some services that are listed in Section 1202 E3 capital A, health law accounting, the income from those services doesn't qualify as QBI. But the IRS said, look, you can have one entity with multiple trades or businesses. And one thing people wondered is like, hey, like, what if I have a business where I have both barred service income and then acceptable service income within the same business? Like, what would happen then? The IRS in the final rules kept a de minimis threshold, where basically if you have $25 million or less of gross receipts, if at least 10% or less of the income are from barred services, your whole business won't be tainted and you're okay. If you're over $25 million, then that 10% threshold is 5%. So I think it's probably helpful here to use an example. Okay, let's say that you have a business where there's banking. For some reason, banking is not a barred financial service because it's listed in 1202 E3 Cap B. So banking income qualifies as QBI, okay? But wealth management income doesn't. That's barred. So let's say you have one entity that does banking and wealth management. If the gross receipts are, let's say, $26 million a year and only 3% of the income is from wealth management services, that whole business won't be tainted by the fact that they earn only 3% from wealth management services. But now people are thinking to themselves, wait a second. Okay, but let's say like in the future that business expands okay, and they still have $26 million of gross receipts, but now 8% of their income is from wealth management services. Now that percentage of barred income is over 5%. So now it has a cliff effect and the whole business is tainted. All right. Now, one thing that the final rules did say is, look, you can separate trades or businesses even within the same entity. So now the, the, the focus has shifted to separating barred service businesses from acceptable businesses. And so now people are thinking to themselves, look, if I'm that bank and I am doing banking and wealth management, I have 3% now. So my business isn't barred yet, but in the future, I may grow my wealth management business. Does it make sense to like this year start separating those trades or businesses? Because down the line, once we cross that threshold, maybe a little bit more challenging to say we truly are separate. So now I think like a lot of pass-through owners and practitioners are turning to experts in accounting methods to figure out under section 446, just how separate those businesses have to be to truly be treated as separate for 199 cap A. So the focus now is on separating businesses and people are saying, look, let's call out these experts and figure out just how separate they have to be. The answer isn't black and white, as you can imagine. Some people are saying, look, it helps to have separate income statements between those businesses, separate balance sheet on a transactional basis. Sometimes it even helps to have separate legal entities, even if they're just disregarded entities. Others say, we also like to see a distinct product or service line that have different customers, separate employees, separate management, and the list goes on. And so it's not an exact science. And if you're thinking about separating your trades or businesses, so one can take advantage of 199 cap A, while the other you're pretty sure cannot, make sure that you read all the cases and IRS guidance on this and consult with the accounting methods experts to see if you really can. All this sounds pretty complicated. Now, we're recording this in early May, so filing season has just finished out. How did that filing season go? So I think after speaking to practitioners past the April 15th deadline, the consensus is it was a pretty rough go for everybody. But honestly, I think that was to be expected because it was the first filing season implementing the TCJA and 199 Cap A. So some of the issues that practitioners ran into is the fact that the K-1s their clients were getting from different partnerships were pretty inconsistent. Like just the fact of how you list stuff on the K-1 was all pretty different from entity to entity. And one thing that came up is whether income from a lower tier partnership that is not a barred service, but it flows up through a partnership that is a barred service, and then it flows up to an individual. So you have good income flowing through an upper tier bad income business to the individual. Can that QBI from that lower tier 
year still qualify for 199 cap a and that's kind of an open question and it seems like some people say because on the k1 it's business by business it would make sense that the individual could use that lower tier qualified income and it would still be eligible for 199 cap a other practitioners said you know one big issue is that partners within the same partnership disagreed as to whether their business was in barred business so you have some partners saying look i don't think we're in wealth management and it's not barred and others would say you know i think we are and i'm going to be more conservative so i think after the dust settles and we get through the extension season as well and everyone looks back on how the filing season went i think that we're going to see like a lot more guidance i think we're going to see software updates and hopefully next year and the years after it gets a little smoother all right now you mentioned open question that leads me to my next question now, i understand the irs updated their frequently asked questions webpage on 199 cap a what happened there yeah so this was a pretty big deal so on april 11th as far as we know the irs updated their faq on 199 cap a and they expanded their questions quite a bit and most practitioners at least didn't see it until after the filing deadline and when they saw it they were a little bit surprised by what was in it for example the last question and answer on there was faq number 33 it stated that an s corporation who owns greater than two percent of the company may have to reduce qbi twice for self-employed health insurance write-offs once at the any level and then again at the shareholder level so when people found this i think it was a few days after filing season had already ended i got a lot of calls and emails from people and what was interesting is that some people said look faq 33 was a surprise we didn't do it that way for our clients and so there are going to be quite a few returns where we just didn't follow what the faq said in question and answer 33 others said i'll be honest i didn't see the faq and it's a little bit frustrating that this wasn't highlighted but now that i read question 33 it actually does make sense and this is what the final regulations say and this is just the way S corporations operate and people should just kind of deal with it. And so there's just kind of back and forth where I, to this day, Dave, I'm still getting emails about this and people are still pretty frustrated. And so if they're making a substantive policy change, which some claim that they are, this needs to be, I guess, highlighted in an email, whether it's, you know, maybe put it in a notice or something. And then others say, look, this is just the way it goes. It was merely a clarification. People should just deal with it. And so there's still some bitter disagreement about this. All right. Well, I guess that leaves room for additional guidance. Are we expecting more guidance in the near future? Yeah, and the IRS has said repeatedly that they plan to expand guidance on this. We still have regs out there that are going to be finalized on the treatment of real estate investment trusts and publicly traded partnerships. We still have the 199 Cap A and cooperative regs that are at Iowa right now. And the IRS said, look, even though we put out final regs on like the basic stuff on how to like use 199 Cap A, we're open to changing stuff and providing more guidance down the line. Just last week, an IRS official said, we know that people are struggling with what's a health service provider that's barred from using 199 cap a we're open to putting out industry-specific guidance on various aspects so it's i guess more clear next year on how to use 199 cap a for these businesses and what they want is your feedback i also think it's important to keep in mind that the irs put out so much guidance implementing the tcja in such short time and it was really comprehensive people were overall pretty happy with it and it was almost downright impressive that they got this much guidance out and they also kept up with their other projects that they had prior to the tcja being passed So they have been working around the clock. They're going to continue to work and they are open to change. So if you have comments on something that didn't go well last filing season, tell the IRS because they're all ears right now. All right. And we're all ears for any additional guidance. So we'll have to have you back as we get more. You know, Dave, I think that like by the time we're all getting comfortable with this uh, around 2025, it'll expire that next year. (sighs) Okay. Well, Eric, thank you for being here. Thanks, Dave. And now coming attractions. Each week we preview commentary that will be appearing in the next issue of the Tax Notes magazines. We're joined by Executive Editor for Commentary, Jasper Smith. Jasper, what will you have for us? In Tax Notes, Laura Barzillai and Dustin Anderson 
Consider when Section 382's limit on net operating losses applies by examining the definition of stock and where instruments with equity characteristics fall within it. Also, David Saltzman and Adam Stella examine how the golden parachute rules jibe with the ones regarding guilty, emphasizing that Section 280G's disallowance of some deductions will result in higher guilty. In state tax notes, RetroSalt is a new series that will revisit noteworthy state tax notes articles from the archives. The first installment will be a reprint of a 1996 commentary on the MTC's National Nexus Program Bulletin 95-1 by Richard D. Pomp and the late Michael McIntyre, with an intro by Michael Mazaroff. Separately, Alyssa McLaughlin and Kathleen Quinn discuss misconceptions regarding guilty. And in Tax Notes International, Steve Suarez discusses recent developments in court cases that illustrate the Canada Revenue Agency's efforts to expand its powers to obtain taxpayer information, while Paul Tadros argues against the EU's placement of Trinidad and Tobago on its tax havens list. As always, we also want to remind listeners of the June 30th deadline for our student writing competition. For more information, visit taxnotes.com forward slash contest. You can read all that and a lot more in the May 13th editions of Tax Notes, State Tax Notes, and Tax Notes International. That's it for this week. You can follow me on Twitter at TaxStew, that's S-T-E-W. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com backslash products. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.